Hey, you stay. If you stay, we're liable. We're liable to keep picking. So. Sauce ready. That'll be the first time the cops ever show up to a church service. You guys keep it down. Howdy, y'all. My name is Tiffany Keith. I'm the preaching pastor of Heartstrings, Bluegrass, Worship, and Wild Hearts. Welcome to Give God an Inch, where we open ourselves up to God's nudging. I will read one of my sermons, read, not preach, totally different things. What I write and what comes out on Sunday mornings are not the same. After I read the sermon, we are going to take a little bit of time to reflect on it, what I said, why, and maybe what hit the cutting room floor. Oh God, open us up. Open our eyes that we might see. Open our ears that we might hear. God, open our hearts that we might feel. And then, oh God, open our hands that we might leave this place and serve you. Amen. Once upon a time, a long, long time ago, in a land far, far away, in a little village called Bethlehem, a baby was born. And this was not just any baby. He wasn't born to wealth or power or class, but one day the Spirit of God would descend upon him, and he would grow to be called King of the Jews. His mom named him David. We know him as King David. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself. Long before he was king, he was just the youngest boy in his family. He had eight, eight older brothers. We don't know if he had any sisters. The scriptures don't tell us. If he did, I bet they doted on their baby brother, and I bet he ate it up. When he was still a boy, a man came to their town, a priest on a journey to find a king. He lined up all the other brothers, but they were not good enough for the priest. So their father reluctantly called David in from the fields. This, this is him, said the priest in front of all of his older brothers. The priest took oil and poured it on the young man's head. You are the king of the Jews. That was when the spirit of God came to rest on that baby that was born in Bethlehem. And David did grow to be king of the Jews. As king, he not only captured the heart of the nation of Israel, but also God's heart. He was broken and flawed. He was a musician and a poet and a warrior. He had tremendous victories against the Philistines, the Jeshurites, the Jezites, the Jebusites, and the Amalekites. He brought Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. He built a temple, a place for all his people, 
for all generations following him to go and worship God. And when he died, his people mourned him. His nation started falling apart. The one nation split into two. Eventually, the northern kingdom was brought down and spread out until there was nothing left but Samaritans. The southern kingdom was brought down and the people taken into exile into Babylon. Bad king after bad king followed. Bad alliance after bad alliance, bad choices. But the people never forgot their king. They never lost hope that there would be another king, a king from the line of King David, a warrior king that would bring all the tribes together again, a king that would overthrow their oppressors, a king that would usher in a thousand years of peace and prosperity for his people, a king that would be born in a little village just outside Jerusalem, Bethlehem. A long, long time ago, but not nearly as long, a thousand years later, a thousand years after King David, a thousand years and a million stories after they lost their king, in an even stranger land, even farther away, there were some priests about to go on a journey to find the king. But these priests were different. They were astrologers. They did not worship the God of Israel. The story of these people, the Israeli people, the Hebrew people, it was not their story. Those people were not their people. These priests had different language, different rituals, a different way of seeing the sacred. And they saw something. Maybe they got their first glimmer that something was calling them as they looked at the lines etched in the palms of their loved ones. Maybe it was when they sat with their morning coffee, tea, and opened their newspaper to read the horoscope for the day. Maybe they had ancient prophecies of their own. Ancient stories told generation after generation that kept their eyes open for a star. Maybe when they saw the star, they knew exactly what it meant. Maybe they were just so in tuned to the world around them, to the movements and rhythms and patterns and cycles of the cosmos, that when a new star appeared, they knew that something so big so important just happened that the cosmos themselves shifted and they needed to go see what it was. Maybe they just knew it was time to get up, time to gather their things and make a journey. They spent their nights around a campfire keeping warm, preparing their meals, talking about what they expected to encounter when they arrived. Would they find parades? and celebrations, and a child tuck away, tucked away in a castle, living a childhood of luxury? 
would they find hordes of people surrounding the next king of the Jews. The anticipation grew as their days, as they spent their days traveling towards the light, the light that had broken through, disrupted their lives. Eventually, they found their way to another kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, to the city of Jerusalem. They did not enter unnoticed. A gathering of people from another land obviously having traveled from a distance, asking all sorts of questions. Can you see them? Dressed in the clothes of a priestly class, looking all educated and wealthy and influential. The already busy streets could barely hold their pack animals, servants, and treasures. They were really impossible to ignore when they started asking people priests of the land where their new king was, the baby-born king of the Jews. Excuse me, sir. Where is the king, the baby? Where are the parades, the celebrations? Well, how about you listen to their story for yourself? Hear these words from the Gospel of Matthew. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem asking, Where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet, And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, asking, Go and search diligently for the child. When you have found him, bring me word so that I may go and pay him homage. When they had heard the king, they set out. And there ahead of them went the star that they had seen in its rising until it stopped over the place where the child was. May God bless the reading, hearing, and doing of this word. I wonder if the child's face was glowing when they found him, if his halo rested over his head even then. I wonder if that's why they were so overwhelmed with joy when they finally found him. And the star finally led him to the child's home, to Bethlehem, to the city where the great King David had been born so many lifetimes before. They knelt before this child, Jesus, King of the Jews, the long-awaited Messiah, God with us. They knelt before this child and they gave they gave all they had. Even if the religious elite sitting with their king 
back in Jerusalem, consuming more than they need while others starved? Even if they could not see their God at work in their midst, even if they are blind to the love of God, their God will be made known. They knelt before this child and they gave. They gave all they had. Even if they did not come from the same people, from the same story, from the same beliefs, they knelt and they gave because this king is king of all. They knelt before this child and gave. They gave all they had. They left their home, their families, their daily routines. They gave so much of their time to come kneel before this king. They knelt before this child and gave. They gave all they had. They gave their treasures, their gold and frankincense and myrrh. They poured out all they had. They gave all they could and a little more because this child, this story, this moment shook the very fabric of our world. This moment continues to reverberate through time, pointing us towards a God that loves all people, a God that we give our all to, and a little more. That is the king, kind of king we need. We need a king big enough to give our all to, our lives to. I need a king big enough to give my time to, my treasure. We need a king big enough to call all peoples to his way. A king so powerful that his birth shifts the very cosmos. A king so real that he cannot be contained. That he can be contained in the face of a child. They knelt before this child and gave. They gave all they had. And you know what they did when they were done? That's the craziest thing. They went home, back to their palm reading, horoscope reading, stargazing. Of course they went home by another route because they're sitting in the center of power those back in the city of Jerusalem were so afraid. King Herod was so shaken, so rattled by the news of this child that he was willing to do anything to keep his power, even kill all the baby boys that might grow to take it from him. So after this life-altering journey, where they gave their all, they simply returned home by another route. Well, Tiffany, you got us with that sermon. At least you got me. I couldn't believe when you told that opening story that you ended up by saying that the baby's name was David. Everybody in the place assumed you were talking about Jesus. It was a great story. Why don't you tell me a little bit about why you started the sermon that way? You know, I, I didn't want to. I could have just said, 
you know, with words that Jesus kind of hearkened back to promise to another story, or I could tell the story. And the more I studied, the more I dug into the text this week, the more different little spots were similar between David and Jesus. I mean, obviously Bethlehem is a big one, um, but there was a couple subtler ones too that, and I don't, um, I don't remember how well I actually preached them, but there were a couple. So having a priest on a journey to come find a king, and, and that was kind of subtle, but you know, Samuel came, who was a priest that went to go find David, you know, and then we had these, these magi from another land coming and looking for a king and, um, our story, our narrative is deep and it's long and it's ancient. And, um, it's really hard to just say that in a way that we can feel. But when I shared the story, when, when I brought you in, in the same place for Jesus and David's story, it connected that in a surprising and emotional way. Well, it, it did. And, and I just, I just want to say that the immediate experience was to have the story of Jesus expanded. It, it just felt a part of something much bigger uh, and, and less sort of isolated into sort of our Christmas silo. It was a part of this, this big, grand, sweeping drama of God at work, redeeming and transforming lives across centuries, across, across lives and generations. And so there was just this, this moment after, after it sunk in that you were talking about David, that that story was put in a new context, just bigger than it ever has been for me. And I just want to thank you for, for doing that in that very powerful and dramatic way in this sermon. Yeah. And you said you wanted to correct me uh, the first time you heard it, right? Yeah. <laughs> you accidentally said David, but you meant Jesus. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure that everybody hearing that thought, oh, she made a mistake. But pause long enough for people to realize, oh, no, that really is David's story. So that was really pretty effective. Yeah. Uh, thank you. That was fun. It was a very fun sermon. Anyway, my name is Tiffany. And my name is Kent Ingram. And this is Give God an Inch, where I talk about sermons and, and kind of connect sermons with um, life and what we're doing. Uh, we, at this point, have no idea if it's going to work, if it's going to connect what, you know, this time I spend studying during the week um, for the congregation. Uh, I have this bad habit of having random ideas. <laughs> so I had this random idea of, you know, what we, as preachers, we spend so much time on sermons. I mean, how many hours a week do you spend on the sermon, do you think? I mean, not now. I mean, not in COVID time when everything is crunched up, but like in normal time. Sure. Well, you know, I've been preaching for almost 40 years, so I've streamlined it. I've gotten it down to probably eight or 10 hours. Uh, and, and some of that is um, done at two o'clock in the morning. I, in fact, I, I'm writing a, an outline for the next sermon I'm doing right now that 
I, I went to sleep reading the text on, on Sunday night and I woke up about 2.30 or so and just couldn't go back to sleep. And, and most of the outline of that sermon came to me having a processed it through in the middle of the night, I guess, without even knowing it. So, so not counting those times, I probably have eight hours or so in sermon preparation for each sermon. And then the sermons themselves end up being what, 15 to 20 minutes for both of us? Yeah, I, I, I try to preach about 20 minutes with the, the text, adding the text in as well. And part of that's because the service that I preach is on television. And so I have a pretty limited time amount of 58 minutes. And so I have to make sure everything is about the right length so that we get on television. So, but yeah, about 20 minutes, about what we preach, I think. Yeah. So, uh, you know, eight to 10 hours of work, sometimes more, sometimes like it's for me, sometimes eight to 10 hours of sitting there studying and trying to make it work. But the fact is like you, my brain is wrapped around the sermon like often during the week when I'm sleeping, falling asleep, waking up, cleaning the house, you know? And, and so if we're spending all this time in 20, 20 minute sermon being the final product, but there's all this other stuff that happens, the study, the, the knowledge that went into the sermon, like what I'm noticing the more I'm preaching every week um, is every sermon has so many layers. Well, certainly, I mean, you and I have talked about your process of writing sermons, and you, you, you tend to gather a lot of ideas and then discard to get down to the one, two, or three, or whatever you need to, to sort of be sharp enough and focused enough that the sermon has some, some clarity to it. Um, I, I tend to, to sort of gather an idea or two and then work those ideas up as best as I can. But uh, I, I know that there have been times you've been frustrated in the middle of the week or the end of the week because you have way too many ideas for a 20-minute sermon. And so so you do a lot of uh, culling, trying to, to eliminate and sharpen. And I tend to do more building. I have a couple of ideas and I try to get, get them large enough to, to, to be effective in the sermon. Oh. It reminds me of a story that you share about the first time you preached. You said it all in that first sermon, and then we're like, I don't know what to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When I started as a student pastor down in Oklahoma, you know, I, I knew nothing about being a pastor or a preacher. And boy, you, you, you open your heart up, you preach, you know, a time or two, and then you run out of topics and you think, what am I going to talk about for the next 40 years of my life? Uh, but it's there. It comes. And, and the more you study, the more you learn, the more ideas that are there. And uh, I can't imagine when you've been doing it as long as I've been, you'll have a thousand ideas in a week, I suppose, instead of 50. But I, I think it's almost a, a, for me, I think I still feel like I have to say it all every yeah. You know, so I have all of this stuff from seminary that's still just there, right? Like mm -hmm. what each gospel, the, the, that kind of deeper meaning and their history and why. And, and I have the theology pieces, like what theologically am I saying about God? And for me, I know not so much for you, but for me, I love sociology. I love the community and how they interact and, um, and what changes and shifts. So I'm much more likely to, to pull in, you know, from Brene Brown work and, and Glennon Doyle's work and, and um, her memoirs. And, and, and it feels like I have too many places. And one day, I don't know when, 
But one day I will figure out that I don't have to say it all every single week. Well, that's right. And, and part of it is you've not been preaching every week until this summer. Uh, so you've got less than a year of, of preaching Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. And, and when you preach less frequently, there is this tendency to want to get it all out there. Um, and I think it was Fred Craddock that said, preaching is you take a few whacks at the tree uh, one Sunday, you take a few whacks the other side the next Sunday, you don't chop it all down with one swing. And and I think that you, you will come to learn that as you realize that you've got a breadth of opportunity to preach. And, and so some weeks you can be more prophetic and some weeks you can be more pastoral and some weeks you can teach more and some weeks you can care more. You don't have to do everything every week. And, and that, that'll come, I think, from just the rhythm of having done it Sunday after Sunday after Sunday for a long time. Yeah, this is really funny, but I don't think this is what we were supposed to be talking about at all. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> the plan is to talk about why I'm doing the podcast. Well, <laughs> um, so it's kind of cool that it went off in the directions that it's going to go. And absolutely for the podcast itself, that's kind of the plan is to reflect on the sermon and let the conversation go where the conversation might go and, um, and, and invite the congregation into a deeper understanding of the text and the process of creating the text and, and giving them a connection to me and a little bit to you, but to me and, and allow them to get to know me a little bit better in the process. So I'm excited about the podcast. Thank you for sitting down and chatting with me. Well, we've, we've had great conversations about preaching um, outside of the venue of the podcast and the round table and other places where we get to talk about these. So it's, I, I know a little bit about how you think and how you come to this, and maybe I can ask the right question to, to, to help you expose what it is you need to expose that week about you and your thought process and your sermon. Yeah. Um, speaking of that, let's can um, just because you mentioned it, the round table. So this feels like a, a closing the circle, right? The we, the three of us, you, Patty, and me, sit down and do our sermon separately, and then once a week when we're all preaching, we sit at a table and talk about where we are in the process of creating. And then we go our three separate ways and finish. <laughs> yep. And then we um, preach them. And sometimes we we watch one another's sermons. I know I've watched a few of Patty's and, and watched a few of yours for sure. For sure. Um, and this for me feels like a closing of that circle. So here, so you, if you watch the round table on Thursday when it comes out, listen to the sermon on Sunday. I have to tell you, there was at least once where, like, the text I started with wasn't even the text I preached on Sunday. <laughs> yeah, well, and, you know, part of it is we were at different places in, in, in the process. I tend to do mine earlier in the week, frankly, because we record on Wednesday night now because of COVID, but also because, like you, I live with that sermon so much that if I don't get something written down by Wednesday or Thursday, I just take it with me into the weekend and <clears throat> I'm not able to enjoy the other things I like to do. So I, writing it down helps me kind of put a place marker there for a little bit so my brain can work on other things. So. 
So when I write my circle down, it's in little cute pictures and squares and circles. Tell me, what does your sermon look like? Well, you would, would you be surprised to know that it's in Roman numerals, <laughs> one, two, three, four, five, in a very linear outline sort of form, because that's the way my mind thinks. We think very differently, you and I. <laughs> we might a little bit. Um, so I'm going to wrap it up just so, I mean, at this point with the sermon, it's probably already pushed in 40, 45 minutes. So I am going to wrap this up. This is the first time. And, and we decided that, that, um, well, you had a really good idea and I decided to just go with it, um, to end with the benediction that we end with at heartstrings. And it is, um, uh, what do I call it? It's not. It's an edit of Psalm 28.7. How do I paraphrase? paraphrase? That's the word I was looking for. A paraphrase of 28.7, which is as we continue to grow and create community, it will be our, um, I mean, this is our, our vision. It's our um, liturgy. It is the work of the people that we hope we take with us through the week. So go with God as your strength and shield. May your hearts trust in the one who created you. Go with courage. May your wild hearts continue to dance for joy. And in the song of your life, praise your God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much.